If you've been uh, following along in the study guide that goes along with the E2E study, um, last week would have been part 26, and this morning happens to be part 26 point B. And next week will be point C, and the week after that will be point D. And I'm being honest with you, it really will. So your study guide book that you're using, you're going to want to kind of put it on pause for three weeks. Um, here's the reason why. We knew that we needed to lay the foundation of Genesis really, really solid in order to move through the rest of the components of the study of E2E. And so I don't want to rush with the finish of, of the ending of Genesis. And these next three weeks are just crucial to setting up the arrival of Moses on the scene in the book of Exodus. By the time we get to the book of Exodus, and you'll find this through the, the rest of the Old Testament, it'll move at a fairly quicker pace. Um, by that I mean there probably won't be part C, D, and E to some of the studies, but there may be still part B or maybe a part C. We'll see. Um, just know that you need to part, put part 27 kind of on the shelf for a couple weeks as we work through what we're about to step into this morning. And I, I want to echo what we just sang in the very beginning of um, the service when we were talking about God actually being there in the times when we're at our deepest and lowest we recognize that he's still the strength of our soul, you're gonna find the contrast to that this morning when we look at this in part B in Jacob's reaction to Simeon being held in prison. And it'll be a reality check and it's a way to actually measure yourself saying, where am I at on the spectrum on the scale of maturity in Christ? Looking at what you're gonna see in the way of Jacob's reaction it, he probably would have had a really hard time singing that second song that you sang this morning. I don't know that he felt that it was well with his soul as he was working through the issues that he was working through. Before we jump into it, I would just really appreciate the opportunity to pray with you and step into this with God guiding us. Let's ask him to do that. Lord God, we come to you this morning asking that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be our guide and you would be our strength, and you would be the one who would show us how we're supposed to gauge ourselves. So we pray specifically that you'd help us to measure ourselves and look deeply at the things that are going on in Jacob's life and understand that even in the deepest hours, you're right there with us and that you do have us. We pray that you give us that perspective, and we ask for that in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You're, you're going to think that I'm being really hard on Jacob this morning. And I just want to tell you up front that somebody on staff asked me earlier this week, what would you title this, Mark, that we're coming into? And I said, without even thinking, I'd call it Weiner Jacob, or Woe is Me Jacob, or How Come Everything's Against Me Jacob, because that's really the attitude he's approaching this with. He, he's, he's got an attitude problem, even though he's a long way along in his walk with God. It's really critical that we look at this section because we need to be able to see ourselves. A really good story, you're able to see yourself in it. And so we have to see ourselves. Where do we land on the spectrum of the things that he's going, to, going through? We have to ask ourselves, how are we supposed to respond when we encounter hard times? What does God expect of us? Well, with that reality in mind, with that reality check, we do need to spend the time in this, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, to know how to gauge yourself. I'm going to give you a bit of a gauge this morning. It'll, it'll come out in four parts. Maybe if you've been here any length of time, you've heard me say that you can gauge yourself in your walk with Christ. 
You can tell whether or not you're further along than you were six months ago or a year ago or five years ago. For instance, I've said, does the Bible make more sense to you today than it did a year ago? Are you getting it? Do the stories click with you better? Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Only God could do that, and so that's a measure of maturity. But many times we misuse the word maturity in our society. Here's an example for you. In 1955, Colonel Harlan Sanders had a Kentucky Fried Chicken chain, and he began selling franchises in 1955. By 1964, he had sold enough of them that he became really attractive to major conglomerates, and so they made an offer to buy his Kentucky Fried Chicken chain. They paid him $2 million for Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now, before you feel too bad for him, remember this is 1964, it'd be $19 million today. So as an older, mature man, he was able to sell his recipe, and he didn't have an infrastructure. He essentially had one restaurant with a good recipe and some franchises, and he got $19 million for it. So not so bad, but as an older, mature man, we would say he had some degree of success, actually great success later in his life because at that point, he's 74 years of age. However, I've discovered that we use the word mature very, very loosely. Is age an indicator of maturity? And we, we really do need to resolve that very issue. Let me expand on that thought with the old colonel. The old colonel wore a white suit and became, you know, the icon of America as somebody that looks like you want him for your grandfather. But my experience, because of my connections with Youth Haven and having worked there for years, and Colonel Sanders had been at Youth Haven, and many things that I read about him, I found out this guy had a mouth on him that would make you blush. He was mature in age, but not mature in the control of his tongue or in his behavior. And many people knew that, and they knew that about him. They still write about that today. And so you have to ask yourself, does age make you mature? And you would say, no, it doesn't actually. But when we read the New Testament, we, we find the word maturity is used pretty regularly. We're told that we're supposed to, as followers of Jesus, actually mature, meaning an ongoing process. We're supposed to be maturing in Christ. Paul wrote to the leaders of the church in Ephesus that the very purpose of the leader's job within that church was that they were supposed to be helping people mature in Christ. And you find that in Ephesians 4. Let me put you on the screen with this verse. Ephesians 4.11. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, here's my job description for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, the word teleos is being used there, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now that's not only my job description, but that's a very, very high bar for the church. We're supposed to be pushing on to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the maturity level that we're supposed to use as a gauge. So let me give you this word teleos back. It's this word mature here. And it's talking about being very complete in your growth, both in your mental and in your moral character. Now, one of the primary assignments of the church is that I would equip you. That's the job of the pastors, the leadership here in the church is that you are well equipped and you're equipped by studying the Word of God. And so that's part of the task that we have but it's pushing hard on this issue of maturity here. 
And I'm asking the question, is age the indicator of maturity, especially maturity in Christ? And if you're new to church, I mean by that, that someone could look at you and see the characteristics of God in your life. Well, we would discover that most times as humans age, we, we talk a little bit slower, we move a little bit slower, and it's mistaken for maturity. And that's not really a good gauge. That just means you're old. That's not a good gauge of being mature in Christ because Solomon wrote, even a foolish man, if he just shut his mouth, people would think he's wise. Look at me on the screen. Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. That doesn't matter your age. If, if you're 22 years of age and you're quiet, people will think you're wise. I did that through my 20s just to demonstrate that I could control my tongue. I tried really hard to keep my tongue silent. And, and people mistook that for being wise. They, they thought I was wise beyond my years. It's just a matter of exercising control over your mouth. My experience is this. If, if we study the behaviors of those who are shown as examples of maturity, of what it does look like and what it doesn't look like in Scripture, it's very, very helpful because it allows us to see ourselves and we can learn from others as we're looking at their story. And Jacob is just such a man. He's the father of Joseph. He's gone through a lot of hard times. And in Genesis 42, we discover he's in the winter of his life. You'll see this in just about a week or so. He stands before Pharaoh and he says this to Pharaoh. Look with me on the screen. Genesis 47, 9, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Does being 130 make you mature in the characteristics of God? We'd like to think so. We'd like to think that somehow by osmosis, we would act more spiritually mature as we age. Well, let's use this stage in Jacob's life in order to gauge ourselves as an example of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about in reference to spiritual maturity. Now, here's where we're gonna begin. We're gonna see these four indicators of spiritual maturity, and you're gonna be able to measure yourself, and I'm gonna begin with this statement that comes right out of Hebrews chapter five. Hebrews 5.14 says this, Solid food, and it's talking about the deep things of God. The deep things of God, solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So the first mark of spiritual maturity, maybe you picked up the notes this morning, you already see that written down there. The very first mark of spiritual maturity is this, a well-developed ability to trust God in every situation especially in the area of discerning good from evil. Hebrews 5 is recording in that. It says, because of practice, that individual can discern good from evil. So the first instinct is because of practice, it's not to fall apart when you're going through hard times, but to look for God in every situation because He's always at work around us. That's what Jesus said. My Father's always working. I too am working, we're always at work. Well, let's see how this plays out in the life of this 130-year-old Jacob, and how does he do with this first aspect? We pick it back up with the 10 brothers coming back, and they're reporting to Jacob. They've made their way back to Canaan, and they have a story to tell about the things that they've encountered, and now they have to explain the absence of Simeon. Go with me on verse 29, chapter 42. 
When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. Verse 33, the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies but honest men. I will give your brother to you and you may trade in the land. Now, so far, so good. They've relayed everything exactly the way that they're supposed to relay it and they've done it accurately. Simeon has been taken hostage. And I told you last week, he's the second born and he's the one who was most responsible for selling Joseph into the slave trade. So the brothers arrive back home in Canaan and they just arrived and they're saying to Jacob, if we hope to see Simeon again, we got to take Benjamin back with us when we go to get more food. Now, apparently it's as the sacks of grain are being pulled off the donkeys after they're unloading them and they're opening up the mouths of the sacks, at the same time they're reporting to Jacob, they're talking as they're working, and Jacob's response to this news is delayed. He's watching what they're doing and I'm sure he can't believe his ears of what he's hearing, but it's not until they discover the money in the sacks and the rest of the grain bags that he responds the way that he does. And his response is not what you would expect if one of your sons has just been taken hostage. Verse 35, now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Now he's just assumed the worst case scenario. He believes that it's very likely that Simeon is dead. So he says, Simeon is no more. All these things are against me. Now we get it. When we see the reaction to the money that's found in these bags, Undoubtedly, we can understand why the fear kicks in. It was bad enough when they discovered money in one of the sacks earlier, as we saw last week. The particular word that's used here, yare, is, is re referring to this word dismayed, and it, it means to be afraid. But I want you to consider the remarkable contrast between the brother's discovery of money that you saw last week in just one bag and what you see here in Jacob today. Last week, just finding money in one bag, immediately the hand of God was seen. And their response was, what is God doing to us? But here, there's no mention of God. There's no reference on Jacob's part to what God might be up to. Nothing is said of God's hand. It's all about my bad fate, my personal loss. Well, let's, let's check that against reality. Simeon is the one who's in the dungeon, not Jacob. But Jacob's making it about him. So that's why they say this is a remarkable contrast. And the story of Joseph has this remarkable aspect to it because it demonstrates three different reactions to adversity. Every time that Joseph encountered adversity in his life, he always saw it as from the hand of a loving God, one who was near to him in his affliction. Well, when the brothers encountered adversity, their reaction was, 
This is coming from an angry God, and He's punishing us and getting even with us for our sin. But the third reaction is Jacob's reaction, and he sees it as the hand of fate or the stupidity of his sons. And so he goes into the blame game, and they're making my life miserable, which takes us to the second mark of spiritual maturity, maintaining a godly perspective, maintaining a godly perspective in every situation. Because, especially if you're a believer, and this is true if you're a believer, in every situation, adversity is actually the hand of God drawing us closer to Him. How do I know that? Because of Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good. I'll come back to that in, in just a moment. Look at Jacob and look at his response. Is this what the response of a man of God should be? Verse 36. You have robbed me of my children. That sounds pretty accusatory. Dad turning on the sons. The first question we should ask ourselves is this. Is Jacob hinting that he suspects his other ten sons of being behind the scheme of Joseph? Is he suggesting that he thinks he knows what's going on there? It does appear that way. Maybe that's what's going on, that he thinks he knows what happened. Maybe. However, that's just speculation. Here's what we can say for certain. This would be an awesome time for the leader of the family to begin seeking the Lord and asking for God's direction in this, especially the one who is the father of the nation and the leader of Israel, who wears the name Israel. But what we see here is his old man comes busting through, his old man nature, I mean. His old man nature comes busting through, and we know this about Jacob, he is naturally self-centered, and he is naturally very selfish. And I know many of us can identify with those qualities or lack of qualities because we understand that. We understand what it is to be self-centered. But in this case, it is all too much for Jacob. And so he blurts out in verse 36, all these things are against me. That's a valid statement from a human point of view. That's the way an immature human would look at it and say, nothing is going right in my life. But what about from God's perspective? Let's zoom out. From God's perspective, everything that's going on is actually for Jacob's good, and he can't actually even see it. It's not for his harm. So Romans 8, 28, this plays into what I just said. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So Jacob's perspective is poor. And we come to verse 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, "'You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him,' meaning Benjamin." If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. And if you're not familiar with that word, that's the place of the dead. It, it means you'll bring my hair down to the grave in sorrow. Now, Reuben has just stepped up, and he's the firstborn son. So he's taken on the responsibility of the firstborn. But considering the reality that he is out of favor with his dad, if you haven't read chapter 35 yet, you need to do that. He's out of favor with his dad. In this case, Reuben should have just kept his mouth shut. 
Because what he's proposing here, his suggestion, is absolutely ridiculous. Look again at his statement. You may put both of my sons to death. Um, no. Bad idea, disgusting, repulsive. And what in the world would that gain a grandfather to kill his grandsons? Well, Reuben knows. Reuben knows that his father would never take the life of his grandsons. What he's doing is he's offering surety. He wants to build confidence in the offer that he's just made here. But check what's going on with Jacob. Instead of seeing the value in his grandsons and saying, no, Reuben, no, Reuben, I would never do that, Jacob just abruptly dismisses Reuben, and one more time, he puts the stamp on favoritism, and he falls back into the, it's all about me mode. You're going to bring my gray hair down into the grave. And then he goes on to say in verse 38, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he alone is left. When you read this, you see obviously the brothers really want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back and rescue Simeon. But Jacob is refusing. And so I see this passage and I have to come to the conclusion that Jacob's attitude is disgusting. He's saying that Benjamin has to be protected at all cost, and it comes across this way, even if the whole family starves, even if the whole family goes down, I am protecting him. That's why I said to you last week, he is the ultimate helicopter parent. Benjamin is more than 22 years of age. He's not 29, but he's not a child, and his daddy is trying to protect him no matter what. And so it's the end of the conversation. He stops it right there, exclamation point, which is the end of the chapter, chapter 42, and that takes us right into chapter 43. Now, you recall perhaps from last week that we discovered it's a six-week round trip to get from where they're at in Canaan down to Egypt. Let's go into verse 1 of chapter 43. Now, the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. What's missing there? He's not offering to send Benjamin, and they know it. There's no offer to say, okay, go ahead and take him with you. I know that we're starving. So how tense is this? Week after week, the family is watching the food supply diminish, but they all know Jacob's feelings. And so no one dares to bring up the subject of a second trip. So the tension is unbearable. Can you imagine being Benjamin in that case and having your brothers look at you constantly? So Jacob is living in his private little self-centered world, and he's making other people suffer for it because of his feelings. But it's not until the grain runs out that he's pushed to the point where he's finally forced to address the issue. And so in verse 2, you find him saying, go buy a little food. The phrase that's used here in the Hebrew language means go buy the littlest amount that you can, whatever we need just to get by on. And here's the framework and the way that I'm understanding it. It's coming across as maybe if you just buy a little, no one will really notice that you're there. Just go get a little bit and bring it back for us. This has to be confronted. This is an issue that's unacceptable. 
And so it becomes the opportunity for Judah to step up and take command of a very delicate situation. Remember, Jacob has no idea that the famine is going to last for five more years, but he's aware that this famine is very, very severe. So rather than face the real issue head on, here's the weakness in his maturity. He wants to dabble with the issue a little bit at a time. Play with it a piece at a time. Just go buy a little bit of food. Maybe we can dodge the circumstances. And Judah is unwilling to accept his father's minimizing of the situation. It's not Jacob who's going to have to stand before Pharaoh. It's not Jacob who's going to have to stand before Egypt's second ruler, trying to explain Benjamin's absence. Their father has seldom been challenged in his life. But now he's being firmly confronted. Verse 3, Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Notice it's not Reuben speaking up. He's already been shot down. His idea has been torched by Jacob. What you learn by watching individuals in a situation like this is you learn a lot about a person's character by watching how they respond in the midst of a predicament. And that brings us to the third mark of spiritual maturity, a godly response in every situation, especially in the midst of a dilemma. That's when the true nature shines forth, for good or for bad. There's a breakdown going on here in Jacob's spiritual life. He's not willing to even take a chance. Now, mind you, this is someone who's walked with God for a very, very long time, but he's obviously regressing. And here it is, right here in that section of verses. It's completely unspoken, but the brothers know. The, the brothers know that Jacob is willing to let Simeon rot in an Egyptian dungeon rather than risk losing Benjamin, which would take you to this conclusion. No wonder the brothers were willing to sell Joseph into slavery because they've come to the conclusion a long time ago, if dad's not going to watch out for us, if dad doesn't have our best interest at heart, well, we're going to have to do what we can to secure our own future. So check this, what's going on here? For their own gain, they were willing to let Joseph live out his entire life in the slave trade. Well, where did they learn that from? Effectively, that's exactly the effect of what Jacob's decision is here. The decision that he's making here, he's seen it lived out in the life of his sons. They're just repeating the kind of behavior that they've seen in their dad when he's made immature decisions. The book of Numbers that we'll get to eventually has got some really great references to the character and the nature of God. Let me take you to one of those right now. Numbers chapter 14. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Amen, right, church? forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations." We have a phrase here in the West that the acorn doesn't fall, fall far from the tree. 
I, I heard that phrase a lot as a kid growing up. You're not like your dad. My mom would say, the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree because of patterns of behavior. Well, Scripture is talking about the sins of the father being repeated in the third and fourth generation. It's not talking about a curse. It's talking about a generational pattern, a generational pattern of behavior, things that the sons learn from the dad, they see it repeated in their own life. We're not talking about somebody being under a curse because their father or their grandfather might have made bad decisions. But there is a repetitive pattern if there's no effort to take on the new man, the new creation. In Christ Jesus, we're a new creation, right, church? So we're a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. But if somebody doesn't take on that maturity intensively, intently, they're going to find themselves repeating patterns. Now back into the story, Jacob is clearly shaken by the stand which Judah takes. But he's not willing to give up very easily here. Go with me to verse 6. Then Israel, Jacob also, Israel said, why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? Catch this, church. Jacob has just rebuked his sons for telling the truth. The deceiver has just rebuked his sons. He's known as the deceiver. He's got a pattern in his life of deceiving people. And he's just rebuked his sons for telling the truth. So his old man, his old ways of deception, they're still there. And in times of adversity, it really surfaces and he doesn't hesitate to use them. I know this about human nature. When trapped, a deceiver will try to transfer blame in order to get their way. And that's exactly the attempt that Jacob makes. He makes that attempt in the first try when he tries to change their mind by placing responsibility on them. And this is what a deceiver will do. The first thing you notice that he did, it's your fault. Why did you tell the man? Why couldn't you just lie to him? Why did you have to tell him that you have another brother? That's what a manipulator does. So Jacob, in this case, is so self-centered, he cannot see the hand of God in this. But it's there if he would just look, if he would just go to God and say, what are you doing, God? Here's what's very, very sad about this. The very thing that Jacob thinks will destroy him is precisely the method which God's going to use in order to deliver his entire family. So now we're seeing that Jacob's response is really, really poor. First we saw that his trust is poor, then we saw his perspective is poor, and now we see that his response is poor. So he gets a big old fat goose egg on each of these three issues so far. Verse 7, but they said, this is the sons responding, the man questioned particularly about us and our relatives saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? I'm pretty convinced that a psychoanalyst living in 2023 would have a field day with this family. Being able to study them and the patterns of behavior and the way that they would become a case study in the issue of trying to avoid conflict by going to the blame game. He goes very quickly into the blame game, and they come back at him with the same thing. And it's not just a simple matter of sharing family information. This is a deeper issue going on here. And the deeper issue is this, truthfulness. 
They're not really able to be authentic with each other. Jacob expects his sons to deceive other people. And so in that moment, gratefully for Judah, verse 8, Judah steps up and he becomes the voice of reason in this situation. Remember, this is the second time now that Judah's speaking. Judah said to his father, Israel, send the lad, and the word there in Hebrew is a young man, um, Na'ar, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones, I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. So Reuben's offer has been rejected. And Simeon, or Judah now emerges as the leader. His challenge pushes Jacob to have to make a decision. And he makes a hard decision, as you'll see in a moment. Why? Because Reuben offered his sons, but Judah, he offered himself as the guarantee. He promises that he will assume full responsibility, and if he doesn't do what he said he was going to do, he gives up his right to the family estate. All the family wealth will be gone from him. He won't get any share in it. And very wisely, he sidesteps debating with his dad about things that cannot be changed, and he offers to become the guarantee himself, which brings us to the fourth and the final mark of spiritual maturity. Now, we've been looking at the negative contrast up to this point. Now, I want to see a positive contrast, and we're going to see it in Judah's life. A willingness to take on really difficult situations. The fourth mark of spiritual maturity is someone who assumes responsibility, and they're not sidestepping responsibility. And understand, this is a progressive action. This is something you have to take on a bite at a time. Hear this this way. It's Judah back in chapter 37 who came up with a plan to rescue Joseph from the pit. He's the one that said, let's not kill him, but we can put him into the slave trade. And later we find out Judah was actually trying to figure out how to rescue him. Now Judah steps in, and he's going to be the one who wants to rescue Simeon. But he's also willing to become the protector of Benjamin. And he rebukes Jacob for the delay. He says, we could have returned twice, Dad, which begs the question, how long at this point has Simeon been sitting in the dungeon? Well, do the math with me on this. We know that it's six weeks round trip there and back. So that means the first trip took took three weeks to get from Egypt back to Canaan, plus all the time it took to go through the grain that they brought back with them. And then he says, we could have been there and back twice, which would have been 12 weeks, twice times six weeks. And then three more weeks that it's going to take to go back down to get the grain the second time. So roughly four and a half months, four and a half months that Simeon has been sitting in the dungeon. Why? Because Jacob is not spiritually mature and he's unable to discern the hand of God. Hebrews 5 said, the one who practices this maturity They can discern the hand of God to the point where they can discern good and evil, but Jacob can't do that. Look at me on the screen again, Hebrews 5.14, the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So here comes Jacob's response, verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, 
If it must be so, then do this. Now, church, this does not sound like the Jacob of Bethel who claimed the promises of God. Obviously, there's been a lot of things going on in his life. He thought he lost Joseph. He knows that he lost Rachel. He thinks now he's lost Simeon. He thinks he might be losing Benjamin. And I understand going through hard times can skew your perspective. And that's why we need to look at this story this way so that we understand how to measure ourselves. Am I actually maturing on? Am I looking more like Christ? Am I pressing on to the full measure of Jesus? This Jacob in this situation does not look like the Jacob that you saw earlier. He does not look like the Jacob of Bethel who claimed the promises of God on his life. Because there is a big difference between following God and surrendering to blind fate. His response is this, well, if I have to, if you're going to make me do it, okay then, if you're going to do it, then do it this way. Verse 11, take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sack. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise, return to the man. Uh, Jacob, ever the manipulator. Jacob, ever the deceiver. His first thought is, I've got to sweeten the pot. These are not things that Joseph asked for. Joseph never mentioned any of those ingredients, but ever the controller, he's going to tell his adult sons how to manipulate the situation in order to dictate the outcome. And then finally, as a last result, last resort, verse 13, and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. Finally. Finally, Jacob shows somewhat a rise to the occasion, a degree of maturity. He mentions God as the last resort. It seems that it has not occurred to him that God's hand is in all of this. But when all else fails, well, then trust God. That's the resort most people go to, not a mature man of God. Verse uh, very last verse, I guess it is, 14. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand, and Benjamin, then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. If I am bereaved doesn't give much evidence of hope, does it? It doesn't actually instill confidence in you. We have the benefit of time. You and I are removed by thousands of years looking back on these incidents, and we have the benefit of saying, Jacob, how could you not see it? And we could be very quickly his accusers, and I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to be that. And that's why I said, you're going to think I'm being really hard on Jacob. And there's good reason to be, but I'm also aware that he's gone through really hard things. But we have the perspective of time looking at this, and we recognize his fears are completely unfounded. If he'd gotten his way, his entire family would have starved in Canaan, and they would not have been saved. So the Jacob that you're seeing here is far different than the spiritual state of Joseph. Joseph, when he comes into adversity, 
He draws closer to God. No wonder it falls to Joseph to become the head of the family when they're in Egypt. And compared to his father, Judah comes off as a spiritual giant. The the characteristics that we've seen in Jacob this morning are all too familiar to you and I. Humanly, our first response often is just to put it off. We come up against a hard thing, we would just as soon push it away and, and not have to deal with it. But that's the opposite of what we see in spiritual maturity. We should not be delaying action until it reaches a crisis point, which is exactly what we saw Jacob do. That is the opposite of spiritual maturity. So let me just go back over with you the four marks of spiritual maturity this morning, as you've seen. An ability to trust God in every situation. And that comes from being able to discern good from evil. How does that happen? Because of practice, that you've been thoroughly equipped and that you're practicing it, trusting God. Here's the second one, maintaining a godly perspective in every situation, that He's drawing us closer to Him. Romans 8, for God causes all things to work together for good, that He's the one involved in it. Third one, having a godly response to every dilemma. Because we know that's when the true nature shines forth, either for good or for bad. And here's the fourth one, that willingness to step into difficult situations, to assume responsibility, not sidestepping it, but a mature follower of God steps into the difficulty and takes it on. I just want to remind you this morning, it's, it's a progressive thing. You don't instantly become mature. We all know that, right? We all understand that. It's a progressive development in our lives. It's something that happens as a result of practice. So we close with Ephesians 4 again this morning with just this reminder. It comes right here from verse 11, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I'm going to pray for us that way. If you want to talk more about this after the service, I'll be down here in the front and be happy to engage with you. Let's have some time just to pray together. Father, I thank you for the reality of what we saw stated in Horatio Spafford's song this morning, that your peace like a river, it can flood our soul, but it's all in perspective. It's how we approach those really hard things recognizing that you're in control. And we're seeing this morning that it looks like Jacob came to the conclusion, at least at this point, that he didn't think that everything was under your control and that you had the best in mind for him. Father, we know that's not true. We know that you cause things to work together for good. So I pray that as we take on this week, that we would personally Put a stake in the ground, decide that we're going to look at things much more so through a godly perspective, that you're causing things to work together for good, and that you mean it for our good and not for our harm. So I pray that you would bless your church with that capacity, that we would take on this week to speak into the lives of others, to help them have a perspective that's healthy, that's biblical, and that you would help us first and foremost to have that in our lives first. So, God, what we're asking for is that you would help us to become more mature in Jesus. It's in His name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.